In this chapter, Paul deals with the fact that the life of the Christian is to be in every respect a practical demonstration of the truth about Christ. We are called to walk worthy of the gospel. To walk, to live in a way that is in keeping with the message of the gospel. Here Paul speaks about the believer being called to live a new life. See this in verse 1. If ye then, or since ye then, be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Because certain things are true of you now as a believer, you are to live in a particular way. You are to live a risen life. The risen life of Christ. We are risen with Christ, he says. And therefore, our affections are to be set on heavenly things. The old man is dead with Christ. That's the terminology that Paul uses here. He uses it also in Romans chapter 6. He speaks of the old man... Down here in verse 9, ye have put off the old man. And verse 10, have put on the new man. And this is language which sets forth our position before God. We're not the same as we once were. There is a change that has come about. Because, like Paul in Galatians 6 verse 14, we are crucified with Christ. We are buried with Christ. We are risen with Christ. And we are ascended with Christ. We have a new position before God. We have a new nature within us. It's the divine nature. Peter talks about that. Being a partaker of the divine nature. This is our position in the Lord Jesus. Now that position we have to reckon upon by faith. In other words, something is true... But we have to live that out in our daily experience to show that it's true. We have to manifest this new life. It is to be lived out in daily practice. And that is really the teaching of verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. Lie not one to another, saying that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Now I'll flesh this out a little more as we go along. But the basic teaching here is that there's a position that we occupy before God that we must reckon as being true by faith and we must live it out in our daily practice. If the old man has been put to death, then I am not to live my life as if he's still alive. This is the teaching, by the way, of Romans chapter 6. Let's just go there for a moment, because it's very important that we get this message. Sometimes people read Romans chapter 6 and, and chapter 7 and wonder, what is Paul really talking about here? Well, I, I know we're not going to be able to explain it all uh, in just a short few sentences, the teaching of these chapters. But certainly, Paul says the same things here as he says in Colossians 3. 
He talks about the fact that we're dead in sin. There in verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Then he talks about being buried with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ by the glory of the Father. Verse 4. Even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's a resurrection life that we're called to live. Then he says this. There are three words really that are key words in Romans 6. One of them in verse 6 is knowing. The second one is in verse 11, reckon. And the third one is in verse 13, yield. Knowing, reckoning, and yielding. We are to know that certain things are true. What do we know? Romans 6 verse 6, Our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. It's not God's will that we live the way we used to live before we were saved. That's it. That's the old man. That's the old life. So we know this. This is a fact. But then he says in verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Certain things are true, but we must reckon upon that truth. We know it's true, and we are to think about it being true. And therefore that will cause us to do something. And what is that? It is to yield our members, that's our bodily parts, not as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, verse 13, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. He doesn't say you're not going to sin anymore. He doesn't say you're not going to have a problem with sin anymore. He says sin shall not have dominion over you. It's not going to rule on the throne of your heart the way it once did. For you're not under the law but under grace. This is the teaching that we find in Colossians chapter 3. And what Paul is really saying here in as many words is that we are to disown the old life. We are to display the new life. We are to disown the old life of the sinner, but we are to display the new life of the saint. So let's read again Colossians 3 from verse 10. And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. That's God. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And the word charity, as you find in 1 Corinthians 13, repeated over and over again, is the word for love. One preacher said, Love is the overcoat that we put on over the other garments. Here's the crowning garment above all these things. Put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. This is a description of holiness in heart and in life. 
He uses the terminology put off and put on. We're familiar with that kind of terminology because we do this every day. We get up in the morning and we put off our pyjamas or whatever garment we've had on. And when we get cleaned up, we put on our clothing for the day. And then when we come home at night or sometimes during the day, maybe our clothes get soiled, they need to be changed. We do the same thing again. We put off the garments that are somewhat dirty, they've been soiled. And then we put on clean clothes. Put on, put off. Put off, put on. This is the terminology of verses 9 and 10. Now, it relates to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, you're to do certain things. You know, when the Lord rose from the dead, he left the grave closed behind. We read of that in John 20, for example. The Lord had entered into a glorious resurrection life, and he had no use anymore for the grave clothes. He didn't require those clothing, those clothes, those wrappings that were put around a dead body. He didn't require that any longer. He put them off. The same is true, of course, of Lazarus. Remember that story in John chapter 11 when he was raised from the dead? Jesus instructed those that were nearby to loose him and let him go. In other words, take all these grave clothes off of him. He doesn't need them anymore. You see, the grave clothes represent the old life with its sinful deeds. The old man. And now that we have new life in Christ We're to walk in newness of life by putting off the old deeds and the old desires. We do this, as one preacher said, by practicing our position in Christ. By reckoning ourselves to be dead to the old and alive to the new. Now, because we are alive in Christ, we're to seek the things that are above. But because we died with Christ... We have to put off the things that belong to the earthly life of past sin. And that's a message that's missing in many pulpits today. You can make a profession. You can say that you're a Christian, but your life never changes. You do the same things. You live the same old way. You dress the same. You act the same. You talk the same. You go the same places. Nothing changes. And you have to conclude that nothing has changed in such a person. We are to put off the things that belong to the earthly life of past sin. The result, we become more like Jesus Christ. God wants to renew us and make us into the image of his Son You look at some people who profess to be saved and you think, that's about as far from the image of Christ as I can imagine. Now, there are Greek verbs that are used here in the original. You know the Bible is written in the Old Testament and Hebrew. In the New Testament, mostly in Koine Greek. There are some Aramaic words, such as Ephatha, be opened, or Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There are some of these that were the native language of Palestine. Jesus spoke Aramaic. But it's mostly written in what is called Koine Greek. 
And the Greek verbs that are used here are very interesting. The Greek verb translated put off and the one that's translated put on in verses 9 and 10 indicate a once and for all action. In other words, you put it off once for good and you put it on once for good. Now, when we trust Christ, we put off the old life and we put on the new. The old man has been buried The new man is now in control. But, you see here that there's another Greek verb that is translated in verse 10, renewed. That word renewed is what we call in Greek a present participle. And it simply means who is constantly being renewed. This is an ongoing thing. This is not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing. And so, there are two thoughts in view here. There's the crisis of salvation that leads to the process of sanctification. Do you hear what I said? The crisis of salvation, that's a moment. That's a change that happens instantaneously. And then there is the process. Sanctification, the path of the just is, is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The Bible speaks of the crisis of salvation in terms of the new birth and of redemption and salvation by faith. And then it speaks of the process of sanctification becoming more and more conformed to the image of God's Son. The Greeks had two different words for the word new. There's the word neos that meant new in time. And we use this in our English language as a prefix in words like neo-orthodox. The new orthodoxy. Or neo-classicalism. But there's another word, kalnos. And it's translated new, but it means new in quality or fresh. Now it's true that sometimes the two words were used interchangeably in the New Testament, but there is still a fundamental difference between them. There is that which is new in terms of being new in time. There's that which is new in terms of quality and freshness. The believer, Paul explains, has once and for all put on the new man, Neos. And as a consequence, he is being renewed, Kalnos. There's a change in quality. Because he's becoming more like Jesus Christ. That's a process. The new man, of course, ultimately is Jesus Christ. He's the last Adam. Adam was the first man. But Christ is the last Adam. He's the head of the new creation. And when the Bible speaks here of being renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, that's language that's also used in the book of Ephesians. We're speaking about a renewal that happens in a particular way. It happens through knowledge. See that? Verse 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. The word knowledge, Paul used it deliberately, of course. But that was a word that was a key word among the Gnostics. Remember how we talked about the Gnostics and Gnosticism? Among 
These people, knowledge was everything. It was the key to everything. They believed they had a special supernatural knowledge in relation to certain things. So the word knowledge was a key term in their vocabulary. But their so-called spiritual knowledge or insight could never change the life of a person to make him like Christ. False religion can never make you like Christ. But a person who really gets to know the Lord becomes more like him. They say when you keep company with certain people, you can become like them. I've even heard it said about married couples that the longer they are together, they begin to actually start to look like each other. I don't know if that's true or not. But that's what people say. But I'll tell you this, the better we know Christ, the more we will become like Him. The book of Philippians chapter 3 contains the words of Paul in verse 10, where he expresses a desire that I may know Him. But Paul, don't you already know Christ? Haven't you been converted? Didn't that happen on the road to Damascus? What do you mean that I may know him? Well, he means know him in a more intimate way. That I might know him in a greater way. That I might grow in knowledge of Christ. Isn't that what Peter said? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Getting to know Christ better. Getting to know Him more. This is God's will for us. But again, think about this. The putting off and the putting on. It's like our dirty clothes and our clean clothes. And it's the terminology that Paul uses in Ephesians. Let me just turn your attention there for a moment to Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 22. That you put off concerning the former conversation, and that's an old English word that refers to your manner of life, your conduct. The old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. See, there's a new principle that is placed within you at regeneration. When you're born again... God puts a new principle in your heart. It's the life of God. In 1 John chapter 3, it speaks about it in verse number 9. 1 John 3 verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now you can't take that verse just at face value and say that anybody that's born again never sins. Otherwise none of us are saved. That's not what it obviously means. But it is referring to a principle that now is within us. We're born of God and so we don't commit sin, willful, ongoing, deliberate sin that rules over our lives. That commands everything. We have this new principle that is put within us at the new birth. First Peter chapter 1 verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. There's that seed planted within us. Now, the new man is constantly being renewed by God 
It is a progressively developing entity. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he spoke about the importance of being changed by fellowship with Christ. Look at this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. He says there, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, that's our physical body, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. The inward man is renewed day by day. This is a progressively developing entity. But this is something that happens according to chapter 3 of Second Corinthians and verse 18. It happens as we look for Christ in His Word. Look at this. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, that means a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. See the progressive nature of it? Even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Becoming more and more like Jesus. The Christian is one who has received three things that are new. He has received a new identity. Consider the words of verse 6 of Colossians 3. There it talks to us about the wrath of God coming on the children of disobedience. Who are the children of disobedience? That is a description of the unsaved. That's a description of the unregenerate. They are the children of disobedience. You see the same terminology used in Ephesians chapter 2. It also says children of wrath. Children of disobedience. But then we read in verse 10 and in verse 12. We've put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And we are to put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, the following things. We have a new identity. We're now the children of God. And we are those who are shown to be the chosen of God. That's why we're described there in verse 12 as the elect of God. That means the chosen ones of God. Election is a biblical doctrine. But look back there at verse 9 again. You have put off the old man with his deeds. We have a new identity. There's a song that speaks of a man who was a terrible drunkard. And he came home to the house and his little boy was hiding behind the sofa in fear and trembling. Because he was afraid of that drunken father. But that drunken father had been converted. He had been washed in the blood of Jesus. His life had been changed. And the song goes, Son, that old man doesn't live here anymore. I don't live here anymore. That old drunken father used to beat you senseless. He doesn't live here anymore because he's been changed by the grace of God. The story is told of a man who, was thorough, who had a thoroughgoing conversion. He was what we might call a blackguard. His wife and children had been miserably beaten and bruised in his drunken brawls. 
And everybody in that town knew about those incidents. They knew about old drunken John, the unsavory character that he was. Upon his conversion to Christ, he knew that everything has to now be different, and it was different. He thought about the way he had treated his family. And so he decided that he must leave his wretched hovel of a house and find a decent home for them. He went to the real estate agent to find a house. The real estate agent made it plain to old John that that company was not going to entrust one of their respectable dwellings to a reprobate like him. Because they only knew him as old John, the drunkard. But his answer was, I think you're making a mistake. I fancy you're confusing me with somebody else. Because old John is dead. I'm the new John. See, this is what the grace of God does. You may look at a photograph of yourself from many years ago and think, Boy, did I look like that? And you're thankful. That's not who I am anymore. Well, that's the way it is in salvation. I'm not what I used to be. I'm not that same person anymore. This is the new man. And as a result, we have to adorn our profession of faith in Christ with a godly life. We have to show that we're new men and women. And that's really the teaching from verse 12 onwards. Put on, therefore. This is like putting on new clothes. Put on, as the elect of God, these following qualities. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 speaks about it. It's referring to being conformed. Here's how it puts it. Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Salvation produces Christ-likeness. We have a new identity. But then secondly, we have a new unity. You see this in verse 11 of Colossians 3? He's talking about in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. There's a new unity that has been created in salvation. This spiritual transformation that God works on people, it knows and it recognizes no racial, cultural or social boundaries. It's not salvation for white people. It's not salvation for brown-skinned people. It's not salvation for yellow or red or whatever you want to say. It doesn't recognize any boundaries. William Hendrickson, the commentator, said in his work on Colossians, all racial bigotry, chauvinism and snobbery is condemned here. All men are equal. He's talking about all men in Christ. Are equal. Now, of course, Paul is not saying that you lose your ethnicity when you get saved. A Jewish person who gets converted is still a Jewish person. And whatever ethnic background you want to mention, the person's ethnicity doesn't change because they become a Christian. All peoples are not the same. We have different cultural 
We have different cultural preferences, things that we like to eat, things that we like to do. There, there are differences in culture. There are ethnic distinctions between people. Salvation doesn't deal with that. It doesn't have to deal with that. But what it does is it takes away all racial bigotry, all envy between nations. And any thought that I'm going to treat somebody differently because of their ethnicity or their background. Because as the Bible says, we're all one in Christ Jesus. Those that are born again. God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of nations. The United States of America is a very blessed country. Right from its inception. No question. But Americans have no right to expect that they're closer to God than other nations. They're not. I know people who think that my home country, which is just a wee tiny place, that the sun rises and sets on that country. They'll refer to it. This is God's country. Well, yes it is, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but it's not God's country in any greater way than anywhere else. It isn't. Yes, there are places that have been more blessed than others of God. No question about that. But God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of nations. He's no respecter of social classes. You see that in the book of James. He is warning there in the first couple of chapters. It's it's, uh, actually chapter 2. In verse 1, he begins, My brethren... Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Then he gives an example of how you can respect people in the wrong way. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth a gay clothing, and there is an instance of the proper use of that word, which has been destroyed by this ungodly world, Just speaking of that which is bright and cheery. Gay clothing. And say unto him, sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor man, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? The Lord is condemning this. You don't treat people differently because they're rich Christians or they're poor Christians. Galatians 3 verse 28 puts it very, very well. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. But it goes further than that. It actually speaks of the different nationalities. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. At that particular time in that culture... There were distinctions between masters and slaves. There were those who owned other people. They were masters, and those people that were owned were slaves. But Paul says when it comes to the gospel, there's no master and no slave. You're all one in Christ Jesus. You're Jewish. You think you have a greater closeness to God than everybody else. We be Abraham's seed. No. There's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ Jesus. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. There's no chauvinism, no place for it in God's salvation. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. Yes, everyone has their rightful place. 
of service. But there's no caste system in Christianity. You know, there are religions in the world, such as Hinduism, where they do operate a caste system. You have people who are very well thought of because of their ethnicity within the Indian culture. We once had a visit from a very nice Indian pastor who was of a darker skin. And I thought this was rather remarkable. I took him to an Indian restaurant. And I thought those that were waiters in there were going to start groveling at his feet. And I couldn't understand that. And then I realized when he explained to me that he was a high caste Hindu, had been before he was saved. And they would know that by the color of his skin. The darker he was, the higher up the tree he went. Isn't that remarkable? And this is still in operation in many parts of India. Where people get more respect according to where they are in the totem pole, in the caste system. Look, there's none of that in Christianity. There's no such thing that ought to operate in Christ's church. As someone said, for believers, the ground is dead level at the cross. We all need the grace of God, don't we? Christians have a new identity. Christians have a new unity. I can meet a believer from another country. It may not be a country that I would necessarily want to live in, but then my country may not be one that he necessarily wants to live in. But if we're in Christ, there's a bond right away. There's fellowship. One time I was at the home, the homestead of David Livingston, the missionary. It was not far from where our church was in Scotland. And I was standing there just taking it all in. The place where David Livingston had lived and worked and a lot of his artifacts were there, his Bible, his testimony, various things. And I was just standing there and was a, noticing out of the side of my eye a man came walking towards me and he was a black man. And he started to talk to me. And I said to him, oh, you're visiting here, where are you from? He said, I'm from Blantyre. Well, we were in Blantyre. I thought, oh, really? I've never seen you before. He says, no, Blantyre in Africa. He said, the place where David Livingston came to minister the gospel. I'm living and working, studying in England, and I wanted to come up to the place where the man lived and worked who brought the gospel to my country. He said, I'm saved by the grace of God because of, under God, David Livingston. And our place over there in Africa is called after this town, Blantyre. What a thrill that was. And we had great fellowship that day. Wonderful fellowship in the gospel. See, it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter about your social standing if you're in Christ. There's a unity, there's a bond, there's a glue that holds us together and that is the Lord Jesus. And then we have this. There's a new identity, there's a new unity, but there's also a new destiny. Consider verse 11 here. Colossians 3 verse 11 says, where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision and so on, 
But Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and Christ is in all things. Doesn't that remind us of Paul's words in Philippians 1 verse 21? For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. What a statement that is. When you just stop to think about the first part of that sentence. For to me, to live is Christ. He actually said this in Colossians 3 and verse number 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Christ is our life. Is that true of you? Is that true of me that we have this new destiny that Christ is everything? That he's our whole reason for living? Oh, life is precious. That's why our bodies are made in such a way that they fight to survive. Just another personal illustration. One time my father had a very serious situation going on in his body. It was an aortic aneurysm. It almost took his life. He was bleeding internally. We didn't know anything about it until he passed out. And when we got him to the hospital, the doctor told me, the surgeon told me after he operated on him, that when he opened him up, he was an absolute mess. His entire abdomen was full of blood. And he said the reason that he went out like that and there was no pulse when the people from the EMS came, we thought he was gone. The reason for that? He said, you know in your house when you're trying to conserve energy, maybe there's a, a hurricane that's knocked off all the power and you've just got one little source of power, like a small generator. What do you do? You turn off all the lights. You turn off all the unnecessary pieces of equipment and you just keep that one little thing going. He says, that's how the human body is made. He said, your father's body was shutting off all the lights. And there was just enough blood, just enough to keep his heart beating, to keep him alive for those extra minutes. I thought, wow, this is what God has created. This is what God has done. It's actually put something in us that is a self-survival mechanism so that we can hold on to life. So nobody wants to die. But we will die. And therefore we must be living for the right things. And Christ must be our whole reason for living. We've all heard that little adage, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. The thing is, it's true. It's true. Christ, his kingdom, his will, his service, it's all that really matters. This is the believer's new destiny. It is to glorify God. You know the first question and answer in the catechism? What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Whatever brings glory to him. And to enjoy the Lord forever. Christ is all. In Colossians 1 verse 18 we noted that he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he might have the preeminence. Does he? 
Does the Lord have the preeminence in all things in our lives? Can we say, as it does later in Colossians 3.17, that everything that we do, we do in the name of the Lord Jesus? Can we say, as it does in verse 24, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ? Is that why you're living? A Christ-centered, Christ-oriented life. And I say this to myself, can I say Christ is all? I know I quoted recently, and I'll quote it again, a chorus we used to sing in our youth fellowship many, many years ago. He is my everything. He is my all. He is my everything, both great and small. He gave his life for me. Made everything new. He is my everything. But how about you? Is Christ all in all to us? Do we enjoy this new destiny that we have? Living a new life. A life that brings honour and glory to Him. We can only do this as the Lord helps us. And may we seek Him for that help each and every day that we live. For His glory. Amen.